Okay, join me in Proverbs chapter 1 today, 7 through 9. I have never taken the occasion to preach a Mother's Day sermon. And really, probably this isn't quite that, but a, a sermon with a, an eye to Mother's Day and mothers. Um, and we had just last week had the occasion to finish up Acts and we will be heading to First John. But just worked out just right this week. Um, so we'll look at Proverbs chapter one, verses seven through nine today. Let's pray. Our Father, the grass withers and the flower fades, but your word remains forever. Because you are unchanging and your moral law is unchanging and your promises never dim. You are the same yesterday, today and forever. May we as your people see even just a glimpse of your eternal perfection today as we stand in awe through your word. Teach us, we pray, to love wisdom and instruction from your word. May we be blessed men and women who delight ourselves in your word day and night. And may we not spurn those you have set over us as representatives to instruct us in the way of righteousness. Neither let us spurn our own calling to instruct those you have placed under us. Chiefly, Father, may we know and love he whom in whom is hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. In his name we ask. Amen. Let's stand for the reading of God's word. Proverbs chapter one, verses seven through nine. God's word says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Hear, my son, your father's instruction and forsake not your mother's teaching, for they are a graceful garland for your head and pendants for your neck. Amen. This is God's word. You may be seated. I've been listening to quite a few audio books this year. That'll pick up as my job will uh, entail a lot of driving. But every now and then I take a break from the heavier stuff and, and just enjoy something fun and light. And I just finished one by John Gierock, definitely um, not a believer, but he writes stories about his own fly fishing experiences and adventures. And this one is called Standing in a River Waving a Stick. At one point in the, in the book, he, he makes a very interesting comparison between fly fishing and parenting. Sometimes it's better to just leave the fly on the water and leave it well enough alone than messing with it. And he recalled one of his friend's advice about uh, parenting. Give them good teeth and leave them alone. But surely there's more to raising kids than this sort of meet their needs and try not to screw it up mentality. Right, like there, where's the telos in that? Where's the end game, the purpose behind our parenting? The scriptures call us to bring up our children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, or to put it more in the terms of this proverb, parents are one of God's primary instruments in training children in the reverential, awe-filled dependence on him that bears wisdom.
This being the plain truth of the passage, it has several implications for us. First, Solomon gives us a purpose in our parenting, a telos, an end game. And that telos is the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord. Verse 8 calls the son to heed and to hear and to abide in the wisdom and instruction of his parents. So here the imperative is for the children. Children, listen to your parents. When we read the Bible or devotional, I love to, when those kind of admonitions come up, just pause and give them a wry smile. But I actually want to highlight perhaps a more basic principle that is in these verses, and that is that parenting and the institution of the family in general serves a higher purpose, and that is to teach the next generation about the Lord and the fear of the Lord. The book of Proverbs opens in verses 1 through 7 with a bit of a preamble that explains the purpose of the book. And that is that these are Proverbs by Solomon uh, recorded so that we might gain wisdom, instruction and grow in prudence and knowledge. And this preamble ends with the, the very familiar refrain that we see throughout Scripture and especially Proverbs. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge or elsewhere. It's wisdom. They're they're very close synonyms. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. So if verse 7 is the end of the preamble, and it's the the overarching theme of all of Proverbs, then I think verse 8 is very significant because it begins, it's the very first thing out of the gate that he wants us to understand in how to apply this principle. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So that's how verse 8 begins. Listen to your parents. Matthew Henry points out that even unbelievers see the obvious wisdom in this. He says uh, Pythagoras begins his golden verses with first worship the immortal gods and honor your parents. Now, of course, we object to the to the polytheism there, but he understands this. Pythagoras deduced as self-evidently beneficial what this passage tells us explicitly. Honor God, fear God and obey your parents. So if parental instruction is the very first piece of wisdom out of the gate, the very first application of the principle, fear the Lord, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, then it tells us that parenting serves a much greater purpose than just give them good teeth and leave them alone. It is actually a means to a much higher end that is and higher than Uh, training up high-functioning, stable, contributing members of society, which is good as well. But parenting serves the purpose of leading and guiding and directing and instructing the next generation about the very person and work of God and our duties before Him, which is uh, challenging and a very high calling indeed as parents. If we were to write a list of of the words of things that we want to instill in our children, where would the word fear rank on that list? 
out of the gate, it sounds a little odd. I want to instill fear in my children. What does that word fear mean? The fear of the Lord. That's a very big question. Probably many doctoral theses have been written about that question. But the word itself, it can mean something akin to terror. Or it can mean something more like reverence or respect. And depending on the context, it can kind of be anywhere on that scale. But in this context, the idea seems to be something along the lines of what Calvin writes in the Institutes. This mind, he says, restrains itself from sinning, not out of dread or of punishment alone, but because it loves and reveres God as Father. It worships and adores Him as Lord. Even if there were no hell, it would still shudder at offending Him alone. Or Trimper Longman is also helpful here. He says it's indisputable, uh, the, the basic premise that to fear Yahweh is to stand in subservient position to him and to acknowledge one's dependence on him. So fear, at least believing fear, is not the fear of an enemy to God or not the fear of a criminal before a judge, but the reverence and submissive dependence of a child to a father. 1 Peter 1.17 says that as Christians, we get to call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds. He's saying we get to call the judge of the universe father. That's the kind of fear we're talking about here. So it's a great privilege, but it's also not to be taken lightly or flippantly because we can reverse those as well. And we can say the person we get to call father is also the judge of all the universe. Which is why Peter says, therefore, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. So our text shows us then that if if we as parents, those of us who are parents, are one of God's primary instruments in instructing our children in the fear of the Lord. then one of the chief roles of a parent is to tell our children how holy, how glorious, how wondrous our God is. To instill in them a pervading awareness that God is God and there is no other. That he forms light and creates darkness. That he makes well-being and creates calamity. That he is Lord who does all these things. As Isaiah 45, 5 says. And the psalmist says in Psalm 71, 17 through 19. O God, from my youth you have taught me and I still proclaim your wondrous deeds. So even to old age and gray hairs, O God, do not forsake me until I proclaim your might to another generation, your power to all those who come. Your righteousness, O God, reaches the heavens. You who have done great things, O God, who is like you? So, kids, children, I want you to listen to this. Do you know that God is very powerful? That he is strong. That that he does everything he wants. And he made heaven and earth and the moon and the sun and he made you and me. And do you know that he doesn't let anyone who hates him get away with it? 
God is very scary to his enemies. The Bible says that he is a consuming fire. But you know also, children, that he is very loving, that he sent his own son Jesus to die on the cross for sinners like you and me. And now that for anyone who turns from our sin and believes in Jesus, he uses that strength and power that's scary for his enemies to take care of us and to defend us. So, children, your dads do everything they can to take care of you, to provide for you. But we are not nearly as strong as God is. We cannot take care of you nearly as well as he does. So I want you to know how powerful God is. But I don't want you to run from his power. I want you in Christ to run to his power and to trust in it and to rely on it every day. So the first conclusion that we draw is that the end game of parenting and mothering, the telos, the purpose is to instruct the children in the fear of the Lord. And next, unlike Pythagoras, Pythagoras, um, Solomon is more narrow in scope. And the conclusion, the second conclusion that we draw is that fear is not a mere broad religiosity, but it is a specific fear, namely in the Lord. There are studies that show that people who are religious, uh, people who pray and attend religious services, are more well-grounded, stable, psychologically healthy people. There's less poverty, lower risk of mortality, less psychological distress. And apparently the relationship they've, they've studied is causal. In other words, it just doesn't happen to be that people who are stable go to church, but actually the other way around, that it's causal, that this activity yields positive fruit. But the interesting question we might ask is, why are these studies reporting this about religion in general and not just Christianity specifically? Also, the Bible itself recognizes the wisdom of unbelievers. Second Kings four twenty nine through thirty says that God gave Solomon very great wisdom, discernment, and breadth of understanding as vast as the sand of the seashore, so that Solomon's wisdom surpassed the wisdom of all the people of the east and the wisdom of Egypt. So apparently, at least at one level, the wisdom of the East and the wisdom of Egypt is some kind of high watermark for wisdom. So there's some general wisdom to be had, but it should stand out to us as significant that Solomon uses the divine name, as we talked about in Sunday school, all caps, Lord, fear the Lord. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, the fear of Yahweh. The covenant God of the nation of Israel, the one and only God. Fear of him is the beginning of wisdom. And when we hear that word beginning, we might think that that the fear of the Lord is like the beginning of the marathon. And we start with the Lord, but then we kind of go on from there and take it from there. 
But actually the word, well, it can mean starting point. In context, it's better to understand it as the epitome of wisdom or the best part of wisdom. So while all men who are made in the image of God, having discerned his power and divine nature from creation, have a certain amount of wisdom and are able to glean wisdom, it's a deficient wisdom. It's lacking the chief part, the epitome of wisdom. We saw this just a couple weeks ago in Acts 27, uh, the extraordinary skill of the sailors in the Mediterranean. You had to be a really an expert sailor to sail in the uh, uh, Mediterranean, and these Alexandrian sailors were. But we also see in the story that they were trusting in idols, Castor and Pollux. And Paul, while he didn't have as much sailing acumen, actually had the most wisdom because he knew the God of the Mediterranean. So Solomon wants us to fear the one and only true God, the covenant God of his people, Yahweh. The smartest, the most knowledgeable person, the wisest philosophers, they lack the very epitome of wisdom. But to have the fear of the Lord is to have the chief part, the epitome of wisdom and knowledge. And we all know people who epitomize this. Perhaps an older saint, perhaps a very simple person, maybe less educated, but they know their God. They've walked in the company of their God for many years. They've endured many trials, but God has always proved himself faithful and they have a wholehearted trust in his sovereignty. Now, who who are you going to go to in a difficult season of life? for advice, for wisdom, that person or, or, or Mr. Intelligence. I think parents and mothers, perhaps in particular, feel the pressure of expectations, um, perhaps their own expectations, that they have to teach their children everything under the sun, that they have to be everything to their children. But in fact, we cannot be everything to our children. But you can lead them to the one in whom is everything. You can teach them about and and even better exemplify in your own life the fear of the Lord. The time when Solomon was writing, women were not usually educated and generally, in other similar, similar proverbial literature, um, calls to heed the instruction of parents were generally focused only on the father's instruction. But in the Proverbs of Solomon, over and over again, the wisdom of mothers is placed right alongside the wisdom of fathers. Because, one reason, is because whether educated or not, they have the fear of the Lord. Therefore, they have wisdom to pass on to their children. Of course, we live in a different time. Mothers today are generally educated. That's a good thing. It's a good thing to pass along everything that we can to our children. Understanding that every good and perfect thing is from the Lord. But the second conclusion then that we're drawing here is that we can lead our children in 
the fear, and specifically this fear of Yahweh, the, the fear of the one true and living God. Whatever our station in life, whatever our gifting, we can all seek to know the one true God of the Bible and pass along a reverential dependence and love for Him. Now, our third conclusion that we can draw here this morning, looking in verse 8, is that hearing is not just hearing. Hearing is not just hearing. He says in verse 8, Hear, my son, your father's instruction, and forsake not your mother's teaching, for they are a graceful garland for your head and pendants for your neck. So hearing, of course, is not just hearing the sounds that come from somebody's voice, from the instructor. All year I've been teaching Greek here at the school and I've been telling my students to drill vocab, to focus on vocab. And they hear me, but they do not hear me. They do not listen to me. In verse 7 he says, fools despise wisdom and instruction. Apparently this word fools literally means something like to grow thick. And we're all foolish from time to time or more regularly. And we're, we're all familiar with the idiom thick-headed. We can all be a bit thick-headed at times. We can be foolish. But the supreme fool in the scriptures is the one who says in his heart there is no God. Or the one who has been instructed in the fear of the Lord from his youth, but walks away into unbelief. This person is not just foolish, but he is a fool. I, I really enjoy Proverbs twenty-seven, twenty-two: Crush a fool in a mortar with a pestle along with crushed grain, yet his folly will not depart from him. It's ingrained in who he is. In this context, then, hearing means listening and doing the Father's instructions. We also see in the parallelism here is do not forsake your mother's teaching. It's not just a matter of hearing the teaching with your ears or, or understanding the concepts of what they're saying initially, but taking them to heart, listening to it, continuing in it, making it a part of the fabric of your life. Persisting in obedience and adherence to the wisdom that is derived from the fear of the Lord. The Bible presents us with two basic options. We can be the blessed man who hears the word of wisdom and instruction. Or we can be the cursed man who does what is right in his own eyes. We can fear the Lord or we can be the fool. The text reminds us that hearing is not just hearing, but it's implementing in submissive obedience to the word of the Lord. And this is perhaps why wisdom is often called something like knowledge applied. It's not just knowledge, but it's knowledge lived out. So hearing is not just hearing. And the fourth conclusion, and it seems obvious, but I need to be reminded because I'm thick headed of things that are obvious is that listening is good for us. There's a theme that runs through Proverbs, and it's usually stated in the negative. It goes something like this. If you act like a knucklehead, 
you look like a knucklehead and your parents are embarrassed. One example, Proverbs 10.1, a wise son makes a glad father, but a foolish son is a sorrow to his mother. But here in in verse 9, the idea is stated in the positive. Hear, my son, your father's instruction and forsake not your mother's teaching, for they are a graceful garland for your head and pendants for your neck. So the instruction and teaching of our father and mother um, heeded, lived out, implemented in our lives, he says, are adornments of honor and public character. It's, it's kind of like what Paul says in, in um, Timothy, 1 Timothy 2, that good works are more, a more beautiful adornment for a woman than fancy hair or jewelry or clothes. These, these are the kind of adornments we should strive after. Matthew Henry, he says, let divine truths and commands be to us a coronet or a collar of SS, which are badges of first rate honors. Let us value them and be ambitious of them. And then they shall be so to us. Those are truly valuable and we shall be and shall be valued who value themselves more than their virtue and piety than by their worldly wealth and dignity. Notice he says, divine truths, divine truths and commands are adornments to us. And this is significant that these are divine truths. And this, this will help us answer, I think, a couple of questions that were in the back of my mind, at least. You'll notice in verses 8 and 9 that it follows a, a familiar pattern. And I think it's intentional that we have a command to listen to our father and mother, followed by a promise of well-being. It's a strong echo of the fifth commandment. Honor your father and mother that the days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. There's an assumption in in the fifth commandment and in Proverbs 1 that parents are passing down divine truths. And that we are passing them along to our own children. And that's what makes adornments. because, Because many parents pass down things that are not divine truths. Bitterness, anger, suspicion, worldly, ungodly advice. And this leads us perhaps to a couple of questions, some elephants in the back of our minds. And the first is that what if our parents did not or are not transmitting divine truths to us? Should they be listened to? Is Solomon telling us to just blindly follow whatever mom and dad say? Well, first, we might recognize what we already have, that everyone made in the image of God has a degree of wisdom. And we should glean whatever wisdom we can from whatever parents or authority figures God has placed over us. And secondly, we should be quick to recognize that God has given humanity important institutions and offices to be ministers to us on his behalf. 
and each in their own way to serve to administer divine wisdom in various contexts and call us to the fear of the Lord. And those institutions are the family, the church and the government. And Reformed and and Presbyterian catechisms follow the historic understanding that the fifth commandment, honor your father and mother, applies to a much broader category of, of all who are authoritative in relationship to us. Um, just one example from Heidelberg Catechism 104. What does the fifth commandment require? <clears throat> and the answer that I show all honor, love, and faithfulness to my father and mother and to all those in authority over me. Submit myself with, their, with due obedience to their good instruction and discipline and also have patience with their weaknesses and shortcomings, since it is God who will govern us by their hand. Um, Zacharias Ursinus, who primarily wrote the Heidelberg Catechism comments on this, and he answers the question, how do you handle those parents or those authorities who are not righteous, who are not passing along divine truths? He says, and although it may sometimes be the case that wicked men are elevated to positions of authority who are not worthy of honor, yet the office must be distinguished from the persons who are invested with it. So that whilst we detest the wickedness of men, we should nevertheless honor their office on account of its divine appointment. When I I was working for Ligonier, I would often get the question, do I have to obey my parents? I think it was teens probably writing in. Do I have to obey my parents if they're telling me things I don't like? <laughs> that was the gist of what they were saying. And yeah, we honor, even if they're not completely righteous, they're not passing down divine truths in the way we want, we honor them because they possess the office of parent. And this is what Peter suggests in First Peter 2.18. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. So in other words, we should respect as much as we are able, the office and instruction of the family and of our parents, because we should honor and respect that which God has designed for our good and for our benefit, even though sin has disturbed its purpose at the same time. And Ursinus goes on to point this out as well. We can only obey insofar as we're not being put in a position of disobeying God because God is the supreme authority. Now, a second question we might want to ask is not what about those who have failed and are failing me, but what about those I have failed? A message like this, I think, is sure to prick our own consciences and to highlight our own failings as children and as parents. And we might be saying, well, I do not look like the parent described here. I do not look like the child described here. Well, all right. Think for just a moment about the man who wrote these proverbs. Solomon's father, David, his family was a a wreck, a disaster. Solomon's own family is a train wreck. And parts of of Samuel and Kings read like soap operas or, or Roman political histories. 
And yet Solomon wrote this proverb with full conviction. Parents are God's instruments to raise up children in the fear of the Lord. And his own father, David, wrote in Psalm 19, 9, the fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. So the fact that that we are sinners, that we fall short of these biblical ideals, ideals should, should not cause us to give up on the fear of the Lord, on the institution of the family or wisdom or knowledge or instruction. Rather, it should cause us to fear the Lord all the more. To turn to Him in daily repentance and to rely on Him in subordinate dependence. And ultimately, this passage causes us to look to Christ. David did not measure up. Solomon did not measure up. We do not measure up. But Jesus is the perfect fulfillment of all that David and Solomon were not. In Christ, Paul tells us in in Colossians, in Christ are hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Christ is wisdom personified. When, when, When Proverbs says that wisdom cries aloud in the streets, that's Christ calling aloud in the streets. Christ he is the perfect son living in reverential and dependent submission to his father. He's the perfect authority figure, the ideal king who does convey divine truth in everything that he says. In fact, he is divine truth, the logos, the divine word. And Christ is the one who bore the just wrath of God for all of our sins so that we as sinners might call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds. And it is Christ by his spirit that we are learning more and more to live in the fear of the Lord and being renewed day by day and conformed into his image. So I'll conclude since it's Mother's Day with with a word to mothers, although this applies to parents and children as well. Mothers, you do have a unique and a high calling and a very difficult one to be an instrument in God's hands to instruct your children in the fear of the Lord, which is the beginning of wisdom. So strive toward that end with all your might, but also remembering what Jesus said, without me, you can do nothing. Only in him and by his strength and wisdom will you be able to take even one step to fulfill that calling. By looking to him with reverent dependence, you will have pointed your children to the glory and perfection of the only one in whom are hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Amen.